good morning, everybody. <laughs> How did you like your first real week of study? Anybody doing okay? You hanging in there? <laughs> um, this was the first week where we really got to dive in, and um, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so last week we had uh, some... These are really heavy Bibles, so it's going to weigh this down. But um, last week we had some questions about the colored pencils, um, a little bit of hesitation there. And so in your groups, you're going to get these lovely coloring pages oh. um, because uh, we want to remind you that your colored pencils are your friends. And... <laughs> And for all I care, you don't even have to color in the lines. So <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, some of you will really hesitate against that, um, but I'm not going to collect them and grade them just like I'm not going to collect and grade your scripture passages and make sure that, oh, you colored this one red. Oops, that was a mistake. No, there is no right or wrong way to do your color coding. It is totally and completely for your benefit. And so this week, um, just spend some time coloring, loosen up. It's okay. We're just gonna just roll with this and we'll see. Maybe as you go along, you'll grow to like it even more. Um, (laughs) We'll see. So um, (laughs) that's the first thing I have for you. Secondly, I got a couple of questions about just how to do this study. And so I'd like to address those before we jump in. Uh, The first question was in reference to, um, there are two different study Bibles, and they were asking which one, what's the differences, and so, um, surprise, surprise, I have them both. Um, I, (laughs) I have a lot of Bibles. This is my weakness. I buy Bibles, like, a lot. So, um, (laughs) thank you. So, this is both of them. Thank you, Kathy. (laughs) She's So we have the Zondervan NIV Study Bible, and some of you probably have had this for years. I've had this for years. This is a very common, the Life Application NIV Study Bible. Okay, so basic differences as you look at the two, one is a little heftier than the other, and I will say as you open it up, um, the words are quite a bit smaller in the Zondervan. It's a little more dense. Um, but the differences are not going to lie in the scripture text itself. If these are both NIV, therefore the text is going to be the same in both. However, where your differences are going to be is going to be in the notes underneath that. So life application is going to do what, as described, it's going to be about applying it. There's going to be more notes on how to actually apply the scripture. Now, I would say, even though it falls at the end of your week, one of the most important, if not the most important day, is application. So if you struggle with finding an application from your passage, this might be the right one for you. Um, This will probably give you more insight into how to apply it. This one is going to give you more general notes. Um, It's a little more in-depth at times. Um, It's going to give you more... This is um, a certain word used in your passage. Here's how it's used elsewhere. Here's how to better understand it. Um, It's going to be a little less focused on here's how to apply it. Both are great. I use both for different reasons. This is totally your preference. So as you look at study Bibles, if you already have one or you're looking at purchasing one, just know it's completely based off of your preference. 
except for the fact that we would encourage you, and I have these in, um, in the section on study Bibles, you want to look for something that is uh, put together by a committee instead of an individual person. Um, this is simply because an individual person who puts together a Bible is going to have a specific bias that will come out in certain parts of your text and in their interpretation of it. If you've got a committee putting it together, you've got more people bringing all their ideas together, and you're going to get a more thorough understanding. And so that's the only part that I would say is different, um, but really it's totally your preference. If you have one that you like, that you've been using, totally fine. It's all okay. I think it's great that we all have different ones that we use because then we're all going to find different things. Um, Second question is cross-references. So if you've used cross-references, you know that as you read through your study Bible, you'll come across these little letters that'll point you to a certain reference in the margins of your page that has some relation to your text. It may be that a word is used the same somewhere else. It may be often a phrase that's used somewhere else, or even just a topic or idea that's referenced somewhere else in Scripture. Now, these are really important because this is how we want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. But I am aware that we can go down a rabbit hole with these cross-references. Especially if you're using the internet to find these, you click, you find one, that one leads you to another one, that leads you to another one, and then you're all over the place. So I would say, personally, I click, I look at one. I'm going to look at the cross-references that are specifically referenced in my passage, because otherwise you're going to start getting down to a little less relevant. These are now scriptures that are referenced in scripture, that's referenced in your scripture. It gets a little too convoluted and sometimes a little bit too much. So focus yourself, perhaps pick a section or a verse that you want to understand better. Look at the cross-references from that particular verse and read the context. Don't just read the one verse. Read how that verse is used in context. That's going to give you a better understanding of your scripture. And so I just encourage you to just just take what part you're wanting to understand, limit what you're doing, because otherwise we're gonna, you're going to spend a whole lot of time and end up going down a lot of trails. Um, just focus on one part. I want to understand this phrase or word, and then you can look into that, um, but don't go too deep into it. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right. So that's my encouragement for you, and if you have any other questions, we're happy to answer them. I know this is different. Um, But I really like that we're struggling with it. I think that if we weren't struggling with it, then um, then we'd have a problem because this is this is different. This is not what we're used to doing, and I think this is good. And it shows that we really need to be doing this because we're struggling with it. And honestly, we're not looking for the right answer. And I think that's the part of our brains that we have to turn off a little bit because we've been used to kind of looking for the right answer. Um, But here, there is no right answer. We are just trying to listen to God. That's all this, the purpose of this study is just to listen to God. What is God saying to you in the passage? How can I apply this to my life? And that is really the goal. And so don't worry, there isn't right answers. Um, We're just trying to listen to God. And so just focus on that this week as you come to your study. So 
now ready for Colossians 1. This is a really um, big chapter. There's a lot in it. I'm really excited to see what everybody pulled from it because we're all going to find something different. Um, Before I jump into our passage, let's go to God in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance uh, to study it together, Lord. And I thank you for your son. Today, as we focus on the truth that everything is in Jesus, may we be mindful of all that he has done for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word. Speak to us, God. Change our hearts. Help us leave here knowing how you want us to live. And may it be a blessing. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so the book of Colossians. Um, Those of you who've been in Bible study for a while might remember that we did study this book a little while ago. Um, And so here's a little, just a little background on what's going on in the church in Colossae at the time. So, first of all, Paul is writing to the Colossians who he has actually never met, which I think is interesting as you read this, um, this chapter, it's, it's full of his love and care for them, although he's not actually met these people. In fact, it's Epaphras who is mentioned in our passage who seems to have started this church and who is also giving Paul the information on what's going on here in the Colossian church. And so this is one of Paul's prison letters, and he seems to be combating a particular heresy that's going on in the church. So this heresy has a lot of different aspects. One of them is it has some Jewish ideas. It's calling for the observation of the Jewish diet as well as their holidays, and also encouraging Gentiles to be circumcised. The book of Galatians is also focused around this particular false teaching of Gentiles needing to be circumcised. This is something that's really important to Paul. And it also seems to incorporate some Gnostic ideas. Now, Gnosticism emphasizes um, the mind and teaches that salvation can be gained through knowledge. Now, this isn't full Gnosticism. This is kind of before it. But it's incorporating the idea that the flesh is at odds with God presents the bodily world as evil, and therefore God can have no part in it. Now, right away, we can see why this would be a problem when we're teaching the truth of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So there's a lot of details to this heresy going on in Colossae, but the part that's the most important for our purposes today is that it seemed to somehow deny the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. It seems that these new and false teachers were claiming that union with Christ was not enough. There's still room for a supplementary work of God. They're teaching that God still had more of himself to give than Christ. So this is the starting point of our passage today as we see how Paul combats this dangerous teaching. Now, as I looked at the whole of Colossians 1 and spent time outlining it, there is a lot in this passage. But I felt like for today, because we're talking about the fact that everything is in Jesus, I would focus in on what falls at the very center of our passage. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. 
so that is what I'm going to focus on today. I know the words are probably really tiny, but that's okay. Um, I'm just going to read through this passage as a whole, and notice if there are any repeated words in this part of our passage. You might have noticed this as you did your study on your own, but as you look at just this section, is there any repeated words? So it says, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior— but now you have been recon- he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which i paul have become a servant So did you notice a word repeated almost comically (laughs) throughout this passage? The word all is repeated over and over and over again. It's all things, even everything comes up in this passage. Paul is clearly trying to make a point that Christ is sufficient and he is supreme. And so let's take this text apart and start with the very first phrase we find in it. Christ, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. So some have caught glimpses of the glory of God, but no one is able to see God in his innermost being. But Jesus is the image, the visible image of the invisible God, the living embodiment of God, the Incarnation. Christ is the reflection of God himself. He is the central and foundational concern. We have to first submit to Christ in order to talk about God. If you want to have real, true knowledge about the only true God, then your first and last word must be Jesus. He is not the best place to find the living God. He is the only place to find the living God. So as I prepared for this lecture, I think I listened to something like 12 different sermons because this passage is really talked about a lot. Um, But one by Tim Keller focused on just this line of the passage, and I found it really interesting, um, his take on this line. So he was actually doing a series on the Ten Commandments and came to the second commandment, which says, "'You shall not make for yourself an image.'" Or, as some translations say, you shall not make a graven image. He said that most of our relationships 
are marred by the problem of relating to people as we imagine them to be and not as they reveal themselves to be. He said this is often our problem in marriage when we marry someone who we, how we think that they are or how we want to think that they are and then spend more time and realize that that's not exactly who they were. Why do we do this? Why do we relate to people as we imagine them to be and not as they actually reveal themselves to be? Because we want to manipulate our world by imagining what we want, prefer, or what would please us. But ultimately, it puts us in charge. So if we do this in our relationships with one another, how much more do we do this with our relationship with God, making him into our own image? Some think, and I have often thought this, that this commandment is the same as the first commandment. You must not worship other gods. But instead, this is telling us that we must not worship the true God while imagining him to just be what we would prefer him to be. So our graven image can be physical or it can be mental. Tim Keller said that a physical image of God is always going to conceal more than it reveals. For instance, if we paint a picture of Jesus smiling down on us, it might portray his love for us, but it would miss the fact that he is our judge. If, on the other hand, we have a picture of him in his wrath against sin, we miss his love and his grace. Any physical image of God ultimately completely falls short of who he is. But we often think of this as forbidding a physical image. But what about our mental images of God? Instead of imagining God as we want him to be, we need our imagination to be ruled by the truth. And the truth is, God knew we needed an image, so he gave us one. We do not need to make the invisible God visible because he has already done that for us. The reason we are not supposed to make an image of God is because God has already given us one. See, on the one hand, if we're allowed to make our own images about God, we can't avoid controlling him. But on the other hand, if we have no image of God, we can't know him personally and in relationship. So God solved this problem for us. Here is how you can know me without controlling me. Christ. So let's continue through our passage and see what it teaches us about who Christ is. Verses 15b through 17. It says, The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is the firstborn over creation, we're told. Now, first of all, this does not literally mean that he is the first one born in creation. Instead, the term firstborn here implies something much greater. It doesn't say that he is the firstborn of creation, but that he is the firstborn over creation. Firstborn then relates to inheritance. Jesus is enjoying all the rights and the privileges that a firstborn son receives. Jesus is going to inherit it all 
because he made it all in the first place. He is before all things in time, and he is before all things in rank. In him, the whole universe is held together. He is responsible not only for creating the universe, but for sustaining it as well. Pause there for a moment. He is responsible for holding the whole universe together, for creating and sustaining. If we hold on to that, don't our little insignificant worries pale in comparison? He is responsible not just for the existence of the world, but for its unity as well. And Paul here repeats that little phrase, all things. Whatever aspect of creation you think about, Christ is the sufficient explanation. Now, on day one, you had a chance to look at John chapter 1 and spend some time meditating on that passage and looking at the attributes of Christ that reveal themselves in that passage. And I hope that you saw how that connects with Colossians 1. These two passages really sit very well side by side. John 1 verse 3 relates well to what we're talking about here. It says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So Paul here is attributing to Christ what is attributed to God himself as our creator. For example, Psalm 146, verses 5 through 6. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. So Christ is the firstborn over creation, but he is also the firstborn from among the dead. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Christ is the firstborn from the old creation, the creation of Genesis 1. And he is also the firstborn of the new creation. He is Lord and heir of both. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrected, of the new resurrected humanity, the community of Jesus. He was the first to be raised from the dead, and his resurrection then guarantees that his people will also be raised from the dead. Christ here is acclaimed as the supreme head of the church. He is the author of life. He is the one who gives new life in the spirit to all of God's people. The church then is the company of those who share in the risen life of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body. This emphasizes this sense of total dependence upon Christ for the continuance of our life in the church. It is very hard to picture one being able to live and grow without their head. However, sadly, in chapter 2, we learn that it is possible for the church to not hold fast to Christ as their head and therefore cut itself off from the essential nourishment needed for proper growth. So Christ is the firstborn over creation, the firstborn from among the dead. 
And he is also the way that we receive our reconciliation. This is verses 19 through 23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have been a servant. So what we learn about reconciliation here in our passage is first and foremost that reconciliation is completely a work of God. The Bible is not the story of man searching for God. From the very first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. We see that God is the one who takes initiative. Initiative belongs wholly to him. And here we read that it is the same with our reconciliation. It is made complete through Christ's work on the cross. You see, what is astonishing is not that we need a Savior, but that in Christ we find our Savior. So bringing all of these truths about Christ together today, being creator gives him supremacy over all of creation, and being savior gives him supremacy over all of the saved. Here in Colossians, we find our cosmic Christ. So Christ is the image of the fullness of God. He is the Lord and heir of creation. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the only mediator through whom God has reconciled us to himself. He is the head and Lord of both creations, the Lord of the universe and the Lord of the church. So this is Paul's view of Christ. Is it ours? As I thought about how to apply this passage we read in verse 28 what Paul's motivation is here, and that is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone fully mature in Christ. Maturity is not for just a select minority. It is available to everyone. So then our vision of Christ is the secret to growing into maturity. If this is not our view of Christ— that he is the cosmic Christ, Lord over the universe and Lord over the church, our mediator and our savior. If that is not our view of Christ, then no wonder we would fall into immaturity and spiritual stagnation. John Stott in his sermon on this passage says, if we want to become giants in Christ, we have to see Christ in his fullness and majesty. Then our worship and faith and obedience will be drawn out from us, and we shall give him the honor and glory which are due to his unique name. So in closing today, I'd like to come back to where I started, um, what Tim Keller taught on this passage, that we are not to make an image because God has already provided us one. 
We do not need to worship God as we want him to be, but instead we should worship him as he reveals himself to be or has revealed himself to be in Christ. And so I have three steps to application. First of all, ask yourself, where is the place in your life that you are struggling right now? Secondly, underneath that struggle, what is the distorted view of God that you are holding? And third, put Jesus there. Let me give you an example. If your struggle is that you worry. Now, I pick this on purpose because that would be probably mine. Um, If I worry, then I have a distorted view of the wisdom of God. I believe that I am wiser than God. I am breaking the second commandment because I'm having an image of God that is distorted and incorrect. So let me put Jesus there. Jesus, who suffered unjustly, went to the garden and said, Father, can you take this cup from me? Father, is there another way? Nevertheless, you are Father. I trust you, and I give myself to you. Let's fill our minds so much so with Jesus that it changes the distortions that drastically are affecting our lives. So if we struggle with impatience, we are failing to see the incredible patience that God has with us every day. If we struggle with bitterness, then we are failing to see the grace that God continually bestows upon us. And finally... If we are fearful, we are failing to see the incredible goodness of our God. So since this year is all about being fearless, how is fear a distorted or incorrect image of God? Fear says, God, I do not trust that you are good and have my best interest at heart. I do not trust that you are full of all wisdom and power. So today, let's put Jesus in the midst of our fear. Jesus, who today we learned, is not only the inheritor of it all, but he made it all. Jesus, who holds the whole universe together, who is the creator, at the same time the sustainer. Jesus, who knew that we were alienated in our sin, and therefore provided us a way to be reconciled and made right. Jesus, our cosmic Christ, who is the logic and wisdom behind everything that is real, true, and relevant, the only place to find the living God. Jesus, who created it all and died for us all. If we have a correct view of who he is, I think it will put our fear into perspective and help us to write the distorted image of God that perhaps we are holding to. So in closing, I found a song this week that was a good reminder of doing that. And um, for me, it got stuck in my head, and I really hope that's what happens to you, because that is how it will remind you throughout your days to put Jesus in the midst of your fear. And so the song is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, performed by Nicole Nordeman. So let's listen to this song. All right, let's close in prayer. 
Father God, as we leave here today, may we turn our eyes upon you. Whatever it is that we are facing or struggling with, whether it be fear or worry or doubt or bitterness, Lord, I pray that whatever it is, Lord, that we would see you as you really are, that we would turn our eyes upon you and be so filled with you that whatever we are facing will just fall away and we'll see you, God. Thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives and for sending your son for us, Lord, our cosmic and amazing Christ. May we leave here um, with that in mind, God, just thankful for all that you've done. May our blessing, may our discussion be a blessing, Lord, and um, just uh, be around our tables and just help us to learn from one another and see more of you. In your name I pray, amen.